0: Good morning. We as a church state our mission like this. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. You heard about uh, that shared mission with some of our, our folks who are serving college students this, this morning already. Multiplicative. Multiplicative. Not just disciples who end on themselves, but disciples who understand what it means to follow Jesus and are called to carry that discipleship mission forward. And the the power of that mission is the Gospel. Making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the Gospel. It, It seems simple enough, I think, right? Disciples who make disciples and the central unifying truth... And the source of the power to accomplish that mission is the gospel. Now, if you were to open up Google and type in gospel-centered blank and just hit search, you'd get a million hits. I don't know that for sure. I didn't count them all. But I'm sure there's multiple, multiple pages. Just books alone. There are hundreds of books with gospel centered as part of the title. And, and don't get me wrong, many of them are, are truly good gospel centered resources in that they're taking the central truth of the gospel of Jesus and, and working to apply it to certain areas of life. Our own community groups, as we began the year this year, uh, studied, used an excellent study called Gospel Centered Community, highly recommended where we examined the core truths of the gospel and sought to apply them in the way we practice small group community here as a church. So while it can be kind of a buzzword or buzz phrase, if you will, it doesn't mean that it must have watered down meaning. I just want to be clear on that. One of the things we would say as a church, we would self-identify as a people as a gospel-centered church. And so we work to encourage and equip you, the people of River City, to live gospel-centered lives. The question is, do we know exactly what that means or what that looks like in our everyday? So over the next two weeks, as we kind of lean into the summer, our hope is to do a little deep dive into the gospel, specifically the gospel of Jesus and what it means to live gospel-centered This morning, we're going to look a little bit at what the gospel is and what it means to be gospel-centered. And so please, I want to encourage you this morning to not tune out and say, I've heard this. I know this. We need to be refreshed in this truth over and over and over again. And then next week, we want to step back a little bit and look at what it means to operate. If if the gospel is central to all who we are, is our our primary source, it also serves as a bit of of a filter, if you will to examine everything that comes at us in life so we can rightly distinguish between truth and falsehood, so that we can serve as faithful agents of gospel change to a people and a culture all around us in desperate need for truth, in desperate need for hope. But today we're going to look broadly at what it means to be gospel-centered. Because I think we can identify as gospel-centered and yet fail to fully believe or embody the foundational truths of that gospel that we say is at our center. And I think this happens where we can believe it or say it and then fail to live it out because we assume the gospel. We think we're on the same page. But when tested in our lives, our assumed Gospel centrality, and that's purposeful air quotes, begins to crumble. Our faith wavers and our practice looks and sounds a lot less like the Jesus about which our gospel bears witness. So our two-sentence big idea is this. We often assume the gospel. We assume what it is, what it means, and what it looks like applied to our lives. That when tested, it leaves us with something faulty. A gospel that doesn't have the power to save. It doesn't have the power to sanctify and change us. It doesn't at all empower us to go as a redeemed people. But a right and renewed understanding of the gospel is a sure foundation for us. Our life here and in the life to come. So we're going to look at a passage from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can turn there this morning. We're going to look at verses just 1-11. through 11 primarily looking at what paul says is a matter of first importance so we'll read our text this morning it'll be on the screen as well you can uh, read along in your bibles 1st corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 11 this is the word of the lord for us this morning now i would remind you brothers of the gospel i preached to you which you received in which you stand On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, if part of our concern, if the focus of our our broken and fallen condition as humanity, our propensity, if you will, is to assume the Gospel, which is my contention, that is, to fail to be specific, to to, to fail to to hold it close, to to fail to make sure we're clear, both with ourselves and with others. I, I think we're in danger not only of it leading to confusion as to what exactly do we mean when we say Gospel, but more significantly, We lose the power of the gospel entirely. And we end up with something that sounds a lot like gospel, like good news, but has no value or power at all. So I want to answer three questions today in order to solidify for us to gaze afresh this morning at the gospel. For us as a church and as individuals committed to gospel centrality. These are my three questions What is the gospel? What does it mean to be gospel-centered? And then what does it look like? So, question one. What is the gospel? The definition on our website under mission and vision reads like this. The gospel is the historical narrative of the triune God orchestrating the reconciliation and redemption of a broken creation and fallen creatures from Satan sin and its effects to the Father and each other through the life, death, resurrection, and future return of the substitutionary Son by the power of the Spirit for God's glory and the church's joy. That is a mouthful. It's very in-depth and robust, and there's lots of important distinction in that large definition. We put that there not by accident, but on purpose. Gospel literally translates as news or good news. So the gospel entails a a narrative, a story to be communicated. In this case, the story of the triune God establishing and accomplishing, completing redemption, salvation of a fallen humanity. The way he does that is God the Father sends God the Son... Jesus, to put on flesh and die for sinners and then is raised again to new life by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, ushering in new life now and life and glory forevermore. Amen. That's the story. Now, I like the longer detailed definition of gospel. I think it helps distinguish the gospel of Jesus from other partial and false gospels that float around in our culture. However, however. Pastor and author Tim Challies, in the church where he serves, he says they use a shorthand when they're talking about what is the gospel. And he says if you asked any kid in their congregation what is the gospel, they'd be able to give you this short practical definition. He said they'd say it this way. Christ died for our sins and was raised. Try that with me. Just hold your hand up. Christ died for our sins and was raised. Simple. Helpful. I do think the gospel is broader than that in the sense that there's nuance and detail and depth, but it is certainly not less than that. All of the components of what constitutes gospel are wrapped up in this. Christ, the object, the hero of the story, died The necessary action that the hero takes for why, why did Christ die? The purpose, our, so that's the other part of the subject. We're the subject to whom the problem applies, the problem of sin, which is the problem and was raised. We can't forget. He didn't stay dead. He rose to new life now and is a sure promise for us of the life to come. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what I delivered to you, Corinth, believers in Corinth, and this is of first importance. See, Paul's writing this letter to a church in Corinth is a church in turmoil. There's all kinds of wickedness and brokenness in the culture around them. It is a very pagan and lost culture. And here, there's a body of believers who are striving to hold on to the truth to grow up in a culture that is self-destructive. And so there are many questions that these believers in Corinth have and they've reached out to Paul and say, would you help us And Paul, writing this letter, is acknowledging that there's a need for spiritual maturity. So much of 1 Corinthians is an instruction and gentle correction, a rebuke sometimes, of the the growth needed in this growing, young, immature body of believers. The Corinthians are zealous and excited, but immature. So Paul speaks to the divisions in the church, draws them back to the centrality of Jesus, who was crucified as their central and unifying belief, Paul goes on to instruct these young believers in how to live now as Christians. He warns them against sexual immorality and its destructive effects. How to live and work together in a new spiritual family that you you treat each other differently now than you would if you didn't share in Christ together. Paul goes on and says, this is what marriage looks like in light of the gospel. This is what worship should look like when you gather together. This is the danger of idolatry. This is the true nature of authority. This is how you practice communion and use your spiritual gifts and how they're all marked by growing up, maturing in this faith. And the true mark of Christian maturity is found in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not spiritual gift use. It's not uh, 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 any kind of other uh, spiritual sign. Paul says the, the, the mark of spiritual maturity is actually 1 Corinthians 13, which is you actually express love for one another. This is what it's like to grow up into maturity. And then in chapter 15, is Paul's unpacked this entire huge book, which we're not going to cover today. He says this, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance. After all this instruction and help and teaching, I would remind you of the gospel... That I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. It's not my instruction. It's not proper worship. It's not proper practice that saves you. It's this gospel. And then he says in verse 3, this is what I've received and have given to you. That Christ died for our sins. We need to be crystal clear The gospel at its foundation is this, that Christ died for our sins. Jesus, His life and death and resurrection are the very center of what it means to be a Christian. And I think we need to be careful because if that's what the gospel is, let's be sure of what it's not. The gospel is not merely a set of truth statements that if properly affirmed will gain us entrance into the kingdom, just get us in the door, and then after that, we set the gospel down and get to the real business of discipleship. That's not what the gospel is. To quote Dr. Don Carson, the gospel, he says, is the embracing category that holds much of the whole Bible together And it's the gospel that takes Christians from lostness and condemnation and alienation from God all the way through conversion, belief, faith, and discipleship all the way to the consummation to resurrection bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. The gospel just, just doesn't get us in and then we look at something else to continue that work of maturity and growth. So it's not just a a key that opens the door to get us into the kingdom. The gospel also is not merely adherence to what Jesus called the greatest commandment, loving God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. These are central. And as Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these commands, but they themselves are not the gospel. Thirdly, Some have argued that the gospel is mostly just centered around the words and teaching of Jesus. If your Bible has a distinction of black letters and red letters for Jesus' words and black letters for things Jesus didn't say explicitly, it's pretty much just the red ones. And not only that, it's, it's his words and teaching disconnected, not just from the rest of the Bible, but even disconnected from his own death and resurrection. That part's not necessary. Let's just listen to what he said. In our day, it's very popular to highlight and focus on the words of Jesus and completely ignore his his passion. Ignore the substitutionary death, the miraculous and glorious resurrection from the dead. As an aside, every word, no matter the color of the type font, is Jesus' words from Genesis 1 till the end. Again, D.A. Carson says this, to focus on Jesus' teaching while making the cross peripheral, peripheral, sorry, reduces the glorious good news of the gospel to mere religion, the joy of forgiveness to mere ethical conformity, the highest motives for obedience to mere duty, and the result is disastrous, he says. It's catastrophic. We fall apart. Our faith crumbles if it's merely assent and merely rule-keeping and merely conformity to, to hold to something out of duty as opposed to delight. So at its simplest and most profound, we must anchor our definition. No matter how robust we make it to this simple and necessary core, Christ died for our sins and was raised. Charles Spurgeon said, all of my theology can be wrapped up in four words, Christ died for me. I want us to understand not just the robust depth of all that the gospel is, but the central, simple, and unifying core that Christ died for our sins. That's question one. Question two. What then does it mean to be gospel-centered? If that is the gospel, that Christ has died for our sins and was raised, what does it mean that that is the center of all that we believe and all that we are? It means, at least in part, that then that gospel is our greatest joy, our most secure hope, and our most passionate message. To borrow from another uh, pastor, Pastor Joe Thorne, I've chosen my favorite picture of him, Uh, to be gospel-centered means that the gospel is what most defines us, unifies us, and changes us. I I found that very helpful shorthand to to be able to kind of package it. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? It means that the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and was raised, is the thing that most defines us, that most unifies us together, and that most changes us. First, let's look at each one of those. The, The gospel then to be gospel-centered, most defines us. This means that every other self-identifying marker comes under our identity for those who sins for whom Christ has died. What's the first question you tend to ask someone when you meet them? Hi, Bob. Nice to meet you. What do you do for a living? Right? Culturally, we are often defined by our occupation. Or you meet someone, and you talk to them, you meet someone, particularly at River City, and they're probably a college student, and you say, hi, nice to meet you, and they're like, oh, I studied at NDSU, and you, your next question is, what are you studying? Right? Because we use an area of study or interest as a defining characteristic. And there are, there are many, there are dozens, there are hundreds of other ways to identify and define ourselves. Culturally, there is a battle for the most important and significant personally defining characteristics and categories, right? But to be gospel centered means that the thing of first importance that marks our identity is that we are gospel people. We are the hour in the definition of Christ died for our sins, it's what makes us Christians. And so to be gospel-centered means that of first importance, when it comes to identity, what defines us is that Christ Jesus died for our sins and was raised. Second, the gospel most unifies us. Of all the things to rally around, there is one thing that most unites us together. And it is not affinity enjoying the same things, although we might. It isn't being fans of the same sports teams. It's not shared political positions. It isn't life experiences. It isn't skin color. It isn't shared language or nationality or family of origin. All these are things where we find unity in various ways, and that's okay. But what most unifies us is that all of those who belong to Christ Jesus belong to one another. So if we say we are gospel-centered, then that's the thing that most unifies us to be gospel centered means that all of the voluntary connections and relationships and shared affiliations that we have of all of them what most unifies us is that christ died for our sins and was raised i mean just hang out for like 10 minutes at a community group and you realize like there's no other reason any of us would hang out I mean that's not totally that's not totally true. Some of us like the same things or we live in the same neighborhoods or our kids are the same age. I just everyone in my group's like, what, you don't like me? <laughs> like that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. I get hands in the back, like, come on. <laughs> Alex is in my group. I like you guys. Um, right, but look around for a second. Who what what could do this? This isn't because we wear the same jersey on Sundays, or because we both grew up in the same kinds of homes. In fact, it's quite the opposite. What most unifies us is the fact that we all belong to each other because we all belong to Christ. He died for our sins and was raised. And third, that the gospel most changes us. There are many common graces that God has given creation to help us grow and change. We have doctors and medicine. We have counselors and caregivers. We have coaches and philosophers and people with great insight and ideas. And in any and all of these categories, we will find helpful resources for growth and healing and change in our lives. I got no problem with that. That is God's common grace to us as human beings. And where we find help wherever it might be, we can count it as one of God's many graces to us. Full stop. But the most change, and I would argue the most significant change for any human being is this, the transformation of the human heart. That is the the spiritual transformation of a person that this resurrection from being spiritually dead to being fully spiritually alive And because we are not merely spiritual beings, but are in fact made of flesh and bone, this spiritual resurrection that only comes through the gospel bears prophetic witness to the literal, physical resurrection to come. So to be gospel-centered means that while there are many areas of growth and change that can be good for us, found in many areas and spheres of life and many different disciplines, I have to tell you, I am grateful For the kindness of God through counselors and wise people who have expertise and experience in my life to encourage, to build me up, to call me out. I need all of that. And I've benefited by God's grace from that. But the most change and the most significant change in any of our lives comes from the reality The applied reality that Christ died for my sins and was raised. So this is a a snapshot. This is not all-encompassing. It's just a snapshot of what I think it means to be gospel-centered. That is, in every scenario, in every situation of life that we're asking the question, how does the fact that Jesus died for our sins and was raised, how does that apply to this? Which leads to our third and final question that I want to ask this morning, what does living gospel-centered look like? For everyone who is walking by faith in Jesus, there is a growing reliance on the gospel that protects us from depending on our own religious performance. There's a reliance on the gospel that protects us from being tempted by idols and being drawn away to worship other things. Again, Pastor Joe Thorne makes the case that a gospel-centered life produces some kind of gospel fruit. I think that's a probably a good logical step, right? And I found these really helpful. There are others, but he gives four areas of fruit produced by a gospel-centered life. He says a, a life that with, with Christ died for our sins as the center produces these things by His grace: confidence, intimacy, transformation and community. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, not based on how good we are, but because it is Christ Jesus who is perfect. If Christ did indeed die for our sins, as Paul tells the church in Corinth, then we no longer bear not only the guilt of our sin, but we don't bear the shame anymore either. And every time sin is exposed in our lives, which it will be, it causes us to run to Christ for the grace that we need. Paul says it right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. This gospel, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. There is confidence that the gospel is continuing to do its work in us. It also bears the fruit of intimacy. Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We are no longer aliens. We are no longer outsiders. We are no longer considered traitors to the kingdom of God. We are welcomed in. We have intimacy with God. He doesn't cast us out because Jesus is our high priest. He washes us and welcomes us. So God is not this far-off tyrant, but a holy and compassionate Father so we can draw near to God instead of fearing the judgment that we deserve, we get grace. Transformation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, in his second letter to Corinth, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And to quote the, the great reformer Martin Luther, We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished. When Paul says, You stand in you receive the gospel, you stand in it, and by it you are being saved. Our hope for becoming what God is, designed is not in our earning but in the spirit's work within us applying the power of the gospel to our lives relying on his truth relying on the the spirit to bring to completion that which god has begun and finally one of the fruits of this kind of gospel centrality is community we look for ways as hebrews 10 says to stir up one another to love and good works we meet together we offer what god has given us in service to others as I've said already, this kind of community is, is built on a unity, not primarily around culture or language or affiliation, but around a shared Savior. To steal one more time from Pastor Joe Thorne, he says this, it is with this covenant community, if the community itself is gospel-centered, that we experience the kind of fellowship that comforts the afflicted, corrects the wayward, strengthens the weak, and encourages the disheartened. These are some of the fruits that grow in true gospel centrality. So let me ask, where are you seeing by God's grace some of this gospel fruit in your life? And where of these areas do you not see it but desire to? So each of these areas above speaks to the fruit of gospel centrality in the individual person. Right? How does this apply to your faith? But what about to us as a local church? Because I think a church can get the gospel right on paper on their website and still fail to be gospel-centered in practice. So for us it means that Jesus is above everything. It's a first he's a first importance. Now this does not mean that, that, we, that there aren't other things that we, we shouldn't focus on or things we shouldn't address. It just means that our collective life doesn't revolve around those things. It revolves around Jesus and His Gospel. See, it's, it's, it's kind of a simple argument of logic. You can really only revolve around, be centered around one thing. So to be gospel-centered speaks to what is of first importance for us as a church. What is the first filter for us as a church? How does the gospel apply to fill in the blank? In part, it means that we as a church aren't a few things. We're not tradition-centered. Filtering first through tradition and how we've done stuff before. We're going to opt to not do that. We're not (laughs) pragmatically centered. We're not filtering first through What works and what's most practical. We're not issue-centered, filtering first through what is currently or culturally or socially relevant. It also means we're not works centered filtering first through all that we have done to show ourselves to be more righteous than others. Now hear me, there are wonderful traditions that help us remember God's faithfulness in history. There are tools and ideas that help us connect with people and engage them wisely, building bridges to gospel proclamation. There are issues and and real current things that are deeply consequential and of which the Bible speaks with clarity and authority in each generation. Faithful men and women must bring the Bible to bear to speak on a variety of issues. And the work that we do as under the Lord does serve as an example to a world of what community, a community of people who are being transformed by the gospel looks like, no matter how imperfectly we live it out. Let me be clear on that. But none of these things can become our functional center. We don't forsake those things, but we are not driven by them. Rather, it's the central reliance on the gospel that Christ died for our sins and was raised that moves us to a robust and clear theology, to to rich and corporate worship. It's the central reliance on the gospel that Christ died for our sins and was raised that moves us to want as many people as possible to hear this good news. So we work hard and wisely to engage and invite and go to others. And we work to overcome practical barriers so that the gospel can be heard and received. It is the central reliance on the gospel that Christ died for our sins and was raised that gives us a foundation on which to address cultural issues with biblical authority and not merely human ideas or advice. It's the reliance on the gospel that protects us and protects others from falling victim to what seems like a good idea, but ends up being empty of any real gospel power. It's the central reliance on the gospel that Christ died for our sins and was raised that drives us, that moves us because of the love that God has for us. We can then extend that love to others leading to joyful obedience that points not back to us but points back to God. See, and this is important because I think it's easy for us to assume what it means to be gospel centered because we know the word gospel and that it has to do something with jesus but i want us to be refreshed a little here with the reminder of the simple and significant truth that paul says this is of first importance of everything i've taught you which is important this is of first importance that jesus died for our sins and was raised paul closes this section Although he was a persecutor of Christians before God wrecked him and rescued him, verse 10 he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. It was the gospel doing its work in Paul. It's the gospel doing its work in us, and by God's grace is shaping us to be as individuals conformed to the image of Christ, to look more like Jesus. Oh, that I wish I looked more like Jesus. And I pray that by His grace, tomorrow I do more than I do today. And as a church, making His grace known among us in the multiplying of disciples, in the, in the pouring into one another, in the calling back to this core reality... And Lord willing to the multiplication of churches, proclaiming the same gospel that Christ died for our sins and was raised. Paul closes in verse 11. He says this Whether then it was I or they, speaking of the other disciples, so we preach, and so you believed. You have received this gospel, Paul says. You are standing in it, it is yours. And you are being saved by it. This gospel that Christ died for our sins and was raised is the sun by which, around which, the solar system of our lives orbits. Christ died for our sins and was raised. This is our central focus and it changes everything. Friends, I want our our vision of the gospel to be refreshed a little this morning. So in just a moment, as we, as we uh, go to communion, I, I want us to, to pause, to think, of to be reminded of Christ's death that purchased for us our salvation. That it was our sins, as Paul just said, Christ died for our sins, that we might not be heavy with guilt we might feel the weight of that and that as we stand and sing in just a few moments that it will be a lifting of our heads as we are welcomed by His death into His glorious resurrection life friends let's pray Father I thank you that you are patient. That in your mercy you sent Christ to die for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he died and was buried and was raised again to new life in accordance with the scriptures. I thank you that in his glorious ascension, the gift he sends is the Holy Spirit. So we ask, Holy Spirit of God, that you would continue to do the work necessary in our hearts, softening the hard and crusty parts of our hearts, removing blinders from our eyes, giving us a fresh and renewed picture of the beauty and the weight of the cross. That our faith might be renewed. Speak to us by your Spirit. Cause our hearts to respond with humility and confession and joy. Prayer. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.